0: I'm reminded of the quote by Nikki Lauda, the famous Formula One driver that, that was being interviewed. And he said, you know, winning is one thing, but out of losing, I always learned more because I can't waste time blaming somebody else.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz. And I want to thank our seasoned sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. Nick Thompson joins me today to talk about surviving failure. That's right, failure. His new book called Look Out, You're About to Get F'd details the story of how he built a successful national marketing company, award-winning in fact, and then it fell apart, ending in bankruptcy. Now, Nick has founded several companies that became internationally recognized, providing hundreds of individuals with employment across the globe. Nick himself has been a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and he's won several other awards. He joins me today to talk about his latest book and provide the key warning signs your own business could be on a disastrous path. Nick, welcome to Unleashed. Thanks very much for having me. Excited to speak with you today. And a little known fact that people may not know about you is that you and I are actually colleagues. Uh, Maybe you want to tell people how we work together. Sure. Well, I have the great privilege of actually being involved with the organization that puts on
0: this incredible podcast called Results. And I am a BEZ, a business execution specialist that helps uh, companies unleash their potential. And so that's what this whole podcast is about. And I'm very lucky to be
1: on the team working in the background with a bunch of great corporations and nick i've had a chance to know you for about six years now and i thought i knew you pretty well until i read your book look out you're about to get f and i know a whole new side of you now and i, I want to thank you for what you've put together here this was an informative read and a very vulnerable read and of all of the things that you have done in your life i mean you have been very successful in everything that you have tried and yet you chose to write a book about a colossal failure. How did you arrive at that decision? Yeah, thanks
0: for asking. I know it's painful. Um, however, uh, you know, one of the things that I realized, and obviously doing what we do at Results and helping organizations and executive teams learn and grow and unleash their own potential, uh, we're always looking at the all the material that's out there from the great thought leaders, business thought leaders of our time, you got know, the Jim Collins, in fact, many of those thought leaders you have on this show, uh, which is amazing. And a lot of the material that they come out with is always about, here's a new model, or here's a new way of looking at it, or here's a best practice for growing a business or helping a culture. And what I realized going through what I went through, of course, we'll get into those details, is that uh, there are no books or no material on what are all the dangers of business, what are the what are the pitfalls, what are the things to look out for rather than just working on how can we improve, what are those dangers that lurk behind us that we need to mitigate? And so as I went through my story, I was thinking, gosh, this might be a very valuable book. and it's not positive as a lot of the other books, so it's a bit tougher to, uh, to write and to read, but very important that we need to look out for all the dangers as well as all the successful routes that we can take.
1: And specifically, Nick, I mean, this this book highlights your, your journey from startup all the way to an international success. So you started a marketing company that experienced rapid growth a really highly engaged culture. Uh, you, you partook in, uh, acquisitions, you brought on partners, the future looked really bright and then it all vanished. What happened? Yeah. Uh, so
0: yeah, it's a very interesting story. Obviously I weave that story throughout the book with the, with the 13 pitfalls, which I'm sure we're going to get into some, uh, however, uh, One of our actually, my BHAG or long term inspirational goal for that company was I said, I want to be one of the companies that Jim Collins puts on his next good to great book. I want to be one of those companies that they study in the future. And uh, we had lots and lots of discussion over years what does it mean? Right? So we need to implement a lot of those principles and that sort of thing. So, what I was doing. Was actually, Jeff, I was gathering material for a book on how to become wildly successful, right? And I was actually starting to write this book um, on, on a success path, not a pitfall path. And uh, as we were growing rapidly and and implementing a lot of the best practices that we that we learn from great business thought leaders, and that we that you teach at results. Uh, We were implementing and growing at a phenomenal rate. We had a culture that, honestly, people were knocking down our doors to be part of. We had companies that wanted to exit that said, this is a company that's going to go places. And so, yes, we were absolutely uh, achieving that great success. However... Why this book is very important is because out of that great success, we, and I say we, me, uh, was ignoring some red flags or not even seeing them and not paying, certainly not paying attention to those things that could harm us because we're like, look at the path we're on. It's incredible success that we're having. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, I know that's a, an issue, but look at the success over here. And so uh, when we were growing and saying, hey, we, we're now a North America wide, we're looking at going international, you know, we're, we're, we are starting to spike out of our industry like the, the great companies in, in Good to Great. I'm like, hey, we're starting to achieve what we're looking to do. We started to uh, fall into a bunch of the pitfalls that are in that book and ignoring them. Right. And, and Nick, so it's not, it's only at 20 hindsight's twenty twenty. So it's not only until after do you spend a lot of time and trust me, I spent lots of time looking in the mirror after saying, wow, look at this pitfall, look at this pitfall, look at this pitfall. Uh, we could have, you know, had we had a more pragmatic approach, we would
1: have been able to possibly mitigate against those. And Nick, it serves as a cautionary tale and there's something, that is spellbinding and, and captivating about a cautionary tale. You referenced Titanic in the book, and there's some similarities there. You, you were building what seemed like an unsinkable company, and this is why everybody should pay attention. But what I like about what you've done with the book is you've written it in such a, a way that you've not only distilled it into 13 pitfalls, but it's more the warning signs before you hit the iceberg. So how do you pour it around the iceberg? How do you avoid the disa- disaster? before it comes. And so whether your business is wildly successful or you're trying to grow a, grow a business right now and you're still in that messy process of scaling it up, everybody should be paying attention to uh, to what you've written here. Now, one of those 13 pitfalls is what you call the hammer. And it's essentially who has control in the organization. And ultimately this was the fatal pitfall that brought the company down. How did control unravel your company? Yeah. Uh,
0: so in, in my case, uh, I was the president and chair of the board. And so essentially, and I had partners that really trusted in, uh, in my experience, in my opinion on matters, um, the research that I would, uh, put into which direction and strategy we would go in. And, uh, we had a great, great trusting relationship in that in that manner. And I I reference in the book that one of my greatest mistakes is saying I didn't feel that I was good to a certain point in growing the company. And as we were, you know, peaking over a hundred million in gross revenue and 300 plus staff at that time, I was saying, hey, I'm a great, I believe I'm doing great as an entrepreneur, but I've not run a larger company that's going to have larger issues. And if, and certainly as we're growing worldwide, there's going to be some worldwide, you know, political issues and so forth. That's just out of my scope, right? Out of my experience. And so what I had done was said, I think someone else should take the chairmanship. That's been in a position that has run larger organization into the billions of dollars because they understand the complexities that come with that. I don't. And so uh, I sort of took a, a step back and and asked for another business partner to take the hammer, as it were, and become the chair. And I believe that was a fatal mistake on my behalf. Um, you know, looking back on it, to say you know maybe I could have saved it from going in the direction it did. Maybe not, right? Maybe it still would have, but at least uh, it would have been easier for me to not as much sit on the sidelines as some of the things were rolling out, but be, uh, be a part of that decision
1: in a, in a more strong way, right? Yeah, and you did a good job of, of really going into the detail of what happened in that particular event. And it's an all-time story for corporate espionage and politics and backstabbing and not knowing who to trust. If you could time travel, what would you have done differently? Several things, and believe me, That has been a lot of, uh,
0: I, I could almost, uh, uh, do another book just on if I could have, I, you know, if I could have, I would have, uh, however, what I would have done differently is number one, uh, have a little more faith in my ability and the relationships around me that wanted me to lead. And I, I was you know, a little less confident at that time to say, I don't think I could at a larger organization. And I talked with my partners. And and in fact, all the partners that were in the C-suite that were shareholders uh, said, I think you can and carry on. And so I actually pushed the idea uh, because I thought it would be better. So obviously, uh, if I could go back and change that, I would I would say, no, I'm I'm good to lead the organization and and make sure we rally the troops around learning how to go into the next you know size of segment in terms of business. So that's certainly one thing. Um, another thing is uh, we we had merged with another organization that was doing the same thing we were doing. Um, so we were based out of Canada, they were based out of the US. And we dated for a couple of years, taking care of each other's uh, clients across the border. And transactionally, it went really well. And so we got really excited about the prospect of putting this together and, and, and going global and having offices and in different countries, etc. We got real excited about that prospect. And instead of listening to some of those red flags that kicked up in terms of cultural misalignment, mainly on the executive teams, there was a cultural misalignment. And we said, ah, we can work through that because we both have the same vision, right? So if you have the same vision, you can work through it. Well, uh, in my experience, vision is one thing, but, but having, the, having a, a cultural alignment is more important. We can create the vision together, but the cultural alignment wasn't there and I ignored that red flag. So going back, if I could do things differently, I would have raised the red flag and said, no, we have a cultural misalignment and either we work that out and move forward or we don't work it out and we go our separate ways and continue to uh, to grow the way we're growing.
1: What are some things that you could have done, do you think, to test for that cultural alignment before you were uh, officially in a legal partnership?
0: The funny thing is that we were testing for it. We were, but we were, and I say we, again, me, uh, when I look back and look in the mirror, I say, wow, we, we actually did test for, um, so we wanted to make sure that there was a strong culture in the organization. Right, organization-wide strong uh, employee engagement, um, very little turnover attrition. Um, there were, uh, you know, we we were uh, one of the most award-winning companies at that time in our whole industry, and they were winning very similar awards as well. So we were already testing that, saying, "Oh, there must be cultural alignment." But actually, if you sort of peel the layers of the onion back you know, awards are, they're, they're surface, right? We, we can enter our own awards, right? So, so when you, you have to peel the layers of that onion back and look under the surface and say, that was all surface uh, culture. What we could have done is tested the culture by doing surveys inside the organization, both ways to say, what is your culture? What is your level of engagement? What's your level of trust? right? Do you trust in your leadership? Do you trust in the decisions that are being made? Are is your voice valued? If we could have tested that internally, I bet we would have come out with some pretty telling answers.
1: Nick, another one of your pitfalls is culture. And so culture is normally talked about in most books as a, as a positive thing, but there are some pitfalls of culture. I wonder if you could describe what those are. Yeah. So one, one of the things that
0: uh, has become apparent. And and I've always been a big advocate of, you know, if your people are happy, your clients are happy. If you grow your people, you grow your organization. So I've always been a big advocate of that. So I've done a lot of study on uh, cultural development in organizations and uh, what, what I've come to. And, and of course, you know, I quote culture Eat strategy for breakfast. It's one of the most widely used, uh, uh, quotes out there on culture. But what people, again, I guess, using that onion analogy, is what does it really mean? Right. And I've heard stories saying, well, you know, culture doesn't eat strategy. And, you know, there's a lot of debate on culture and strategy. But what does that statement really mean? And what it gets down to, in my experience anyway, is that. St- it's easier to develop strategy. Strategy is a tangible, we write on paper, we, we talk together about what direction we're going in. It's very, very tangible. Culture is not so tangible, right? Traditionally. And so it's much more difficult to work on. And so many leaders I work with are like, you know, the culture the fluff, you know, let's just get on with results. And you know, obviously I'm like, if you want the results, we have to work on the culture because it's the people that get the results, right? So there needs to be alignment. There needs to be psychological safety. There needs to be engagement. There needs to be a level of uh, helping people act and, and perform in their best way, right? And, and self-motivation, not motivate people. How do we help them self-motivate? And so all those things, Will help get to the results because it's people that do the results, right? And so we often, uh, I see it anyway, often out in the in the workforce where people are not concentrated. They think culture is, you know, the pool table and the beers on Friday afternoons, and that's an afterthought to culture. That's people that have already been engaged, have already. Uh, work in a self-motivating environment now that they are able to i want to hang out with these people it's it's an afterthought it's not a hey let's build culture and have beers it doesn't it doesn't work that way so that's kind of the pitfall people go into the the parties and and you know the flexible work time and all that that's our culture when really the culture is about enabling our people to act, having health in our culture, healthy conflict, psychological safety, etc., cetera, the other stuff comes after.
1: Well, and Nick, you mentioned a term I've never heard before. You call it psychological ownership. I wonder if you can yes. define what that means.
0: Yeah, so um, we study psychological safety in, in a lot of the material and uh, about making people feel Uh, safe to be able to, and not judge to be able to challenge the status quo and that sort of thing. Um, I use the term psychological ownership. And I believe that psychological safety or having that developed in people allows them to feel the ownership of what they do. So it's not just responsibility. It's not just accountability, but it's feeling the sense of ownership. I I remember growing up as a kid and and buying my very first bike. So I had bikes that my parents bought me and I bought my first at 13 and because I wanted a dirt bike. And I'll never forget my dad saying, I have never seen you take such good care of one of your bikes as when you had to buy it, right? Because I owned it. So I took better care of it. And how do we get people to feel that sense of ownership over their role, responsibilities, accountabilities, and the impact they make in their companies? I feel like that is a key element to helping you—you uh, you know the cultural aspect of everyone being able to perform at their best.
1: Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I want you to keep going on that. I wonder if you could share okay. a couple of tactics of how you created that. Great. So uh, there's a number of ways that we created
0: it at the, at the company, and we still do. Uh, I have, my wife and I have a company still. Uh, So our, our whole philosophy is around, still around psychological ownership. There's several different ways that, that we do that. Number one is we create, you know, job descriptions, right? You know, you do this, 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 and this. And uh, I know we teach job scorecards, so it gets deeper in terms of metrics, responsibilities, accountabilities, who we report to, et cetera. So we have job scorecards that we create for all of our people, but we don't create them. So what we do is we go to our people and we say, this is what we're going to create for all the positions. Here's the one I've created for me, and I want you to use that as a template to create your job scorecard, and so we have them create their own job scorecard, and then of course there's lots of discussion, negotiation, because jobs touch each other, right? You know, responsibilities have to get uh, passed on, etc. down down the process line. Um, so they create their own, and they give have free reign to negotiate all the elements of them with all of their peers, and anyone that their job touches. So it could go sort of interdepartmental. And so by creating their own job scorecard, they own it. They haven't been told what to do. They own that job scorecard. And then we tell them that what we love to see is as we work together over the course of the next number of years, how can you improve upon that job scorecard? What elements can, are, are there metrics that we can actually start shifting the bar up on performance, right? Or are there other roles and responsibilities that will add value to our, our clients that you can put into the job scorecard? So they own it, right? So that's one really big tactic. Everything that we do, we want to we want to get as much of their input on their responsibilities as possible rather than telling them. Right, so that's a key key element to uh, to psychological ownership. What would be another tactic? Another one that we do is uh, three hundred and sixty reviews. So one of the things uh, we you know talk about performance reviews. So if companies do it, very often it's once or twice a year, and they sit down with their subordinate and they say, you know, here are the things you're doing well. Here are the things you're not doing well. Um, what do you think you can improve upon? And if they do, if they do that, well, they'll have an action plan that comes out of it. Most companies just say, thanks. Nice to meet you. See you next term. Um, and then often in those reviews, uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of the term shit sandwich, right? (laughs) That in those reviews, you know, here's what you're doing well, here's what you need to improve and you're doing this good as well. Carry on. Um, we can kind of see through that that language from from our superiors these days. So what we do is uh, self assessment. So we've made a form um, and 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 a questionnaire, and it's sent out by the. Um, so we don't actually have ma- managers. We have what we call pod leaders. So they're leaders, not managers, right? Because we believe that to manage something is is getting your hands in there and managing. To lead something is to say, how can I support you? So we don't have managers, we have leaders, right? So our leaders send this questionnaire uh, in advance and people do a self-assessment. And then they meet and literally just talk about the self-assessment, right? You know, we're our own worst critics, right? So tip- so usually the conversation is pretty positive. is saying, why? Why did you score yourself a five out of 10 on that? What, Explain that to me. What do you think? is is going on there what do you think you can improve upon and it's they're owning their own assessment right so they're not worried about reprimand and you know getting slapped on the on the wrist for you know making mistakes or whatever they they own their own assessment okay so the there's some ownership there. over that
1: the common thread there between both of those tactics is ownership and so yeah. that's i think that's an important point to reinforce is in all areas of our people, interactions, and in our culture, we, we should be looking for ways to empower and provide ownership and autonomy. Uh, that's a, Those are some key ingredients. Now, a good book for me is when somebody causes me to think about something differently, something familiar in a different way. Under this pitfall of culture, one of the things you did there that caused me to think differently was, you said it can be dangerous to answer employees' questions. What do you mean by that? <laughs> right. So uh, the,
0: this definitely uh, came from experience. And I do share this with uh, uh, a lot of executive teams. Uh, in the early days of entrepreneurship, uh, I had people that would come to my office and ask a question. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's easy. Here's, here's the answer. You know, okay, great. I helped you out. Um, what I realized over time is that I was starting to get this lineup outside my door And they'd come in sort of one at a time. It's like, take your ticket, you know, take your number. They'd come in one at a time asking questions and I'm on all cylinders. I'm helping everybody. Here's your answer. Here's your answer. Here's your answer. Um, Then I was like, wow, this, the day I realized something's wrong was when somebody asked their question, walked out of the room, paused and went, ah, I have another question and got in the back of the lineup, right? So, And I thought, there's a problem here. I don't know that I'm actually helping these people by giving them all the answers. And what I realized was, I'm not enabling them to think for themselves. Right? That's that's why we have people is so that we can get this collective brain intelligence. And uh, so uh, I actually brought that to my EO forum group, and I said, I have a problem, and they they said, you know, don't you think that you're sort of the only thing you're hiring people for is their hands. You're not hiring them for their brains at this point because you're doing all the thinking, right? And of course, you know, all of us are smarter than one of us, right? So I realized that, and I started to not answer questions. And I of course, I told everyone i'm I'm not gonna be, you know, this this ignorant person that just says, I'm refusing to answer you and get people frustrated, but I said, I am gonna I'm gonna help you by helping you come to the solutions more on your own. And if you can't on your own, then you get you know, more intelligence from the group. And so anyone that would come in, I'd say, well, what do you think? What do you think you should try? Um, we employ in our current company, we employ a one, three, one process. And that is if you have an issue, come with the one issue and come with three possible options. And together we'll discuss the one issue that you'll leave with, right? Or the one, sorry, solution that you'll leave with. And what happens is they have an issue because very often managers feel like they're the complaint department, right? And so if someone comes and says, I have a problem with this, they're dumping it on you, And so now it's your problem to deal with, right? So this one, three, one works really well. Number one, they think of, okay, here's the problem. I need to come up with three options before I go in there. So 90% of the time, when they're thinking of the three options, they're like, oh, okay, I don't need to ask anymore. I've come up with my own solution, right? So you get less people coming with issues because they've already figured it out because they had to go through this exercise. Uh, The second thing that happens is it's not a complaint department anymore, right? It's not just people unloading their complaints because they have to be solution oriented right? And and then number three, of course, we're helping them own their own problem. So when they, when they come with a problem, they own the problem. They say, here are p- possible solutions. And we say, okay, have you considered this? Or have you talked to Sally in that department? Because they might have good input for you. And so now they have to own it, right? They can't pawn it off on a supervisor or leader.
1: That 131 one is a really helpful tip. <clears throat> They're is a popular quote that is bring me solutions not problems and i get the sentiment around it but there there is a pitfall if i'm going to use your language around sure. that phrase is it can get people too focused on a singular solution when there may be better options so this right. is the first time i've heard of a 131 one, and that would help to negate that single minded focus, laser focus on, there's only one way to solve this problem. So that is, that's wonderful. It, it puts the onus on them to do a little bit more thinking on it before they bring it to your attention. I mean, I think you never maybe know this, but they may not even bring some of the problems to your attention in the first place because they end up solving them on their own, or they realize that they may not be that significant once they spend a bit more time thinking about it. One of the other pitfalls, and you do a nice job of this, you bring in some psychology. So you mentioned our good friend, uh, Sigmund Freud, And ego can be a pitfall and you talk very openly how your ego got in the way of your business success. How so? Right. So uh, as I mentioned, we got to this great degree of success
0: and we were celebrating on all fronts and we had people knocking down our door and we were winning awards. And it seemed like, honestly, I did feel that um, almost every decision that I made during a period of about 10 years, it just always worked out like to the best possible degree it could and had surprises along the way to say, wow, that didn't work out. It worked out great. And so, You're the and touch. so you yeah, it is the Midas touch. And I, I do mention that. Right. And uh, you start to get caught up in, in your own in your own web of brilliance, I guess it's this facade, right? And you start to get caught up in that going, Hey, I think I got this. I think I got this. And, and it was that ego sneaking in to say, you know, don't worry, you got this, you got this. And instead of let's do the, you know, let's do the check. Well, let's, let's make sure we do a self check here to see, is that the right direction? Is it not, hey, what are the potential pitfalls that could happen instead of, ah, we, we're good. Like it's always worked out for us, right? The silver spoon's there or the Midas touches there. And I got caught up in that. Again, I've always believed myself to be a fairly humble guy. Um, I, I know that it, again, it takes many to get to the results. And I've always said, I've never come up with a brilliant idea. I just know when I see one and I look for patterns, but I'm not a great business thinker of our time. And I appreciate being on the show, but but I'm not a great business thinker. I haven't come up with new business models, but what I realized looking back in the mirror, when I was looking in the mirror, after all of this unfolded was I actually let ego sneak in and tap me on the shoulder and say, don't worry about it. You got it. It's don't worry about that. It's all good. Oh, that red flag? Mm, don't worry about it. Look how well we're doing here. And so it it actually
1: absolutely came up and, and bit me in the butt. So if you could have jumped in your DeLorean and gone back, what would you have done differently to keep it in check? Yeah. Um,
0: so one of the one of the my favorite terms um that uh Jim Collins has spoken about is the stock uh Stockdale paradox, right? Where we need to we need to be, be understanding and positive about the future, but also deal with reality. Right. And so what I was doing was looking at the future and not dealing with some of the realities. So I wasn't doing a stop check. Right. So yeah, that's great, but we need to balance it with some, you know, cautious optimism rather than just pure optimism. And how can, how can we start to look at, uh, balancing out what are let's sit down and brainstorm what could be the potential issues right instead of this all looks bright and sunny and let's just go there cuz it's such a prettier picture right we, we don't want to talk about the negative right we love that positive story we, we we gravitate the from rags to riches story is 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 one of the most you know compelling stories for us in 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 business and you know all the Netflix shows and that sort of thing and what we need to do because we're responsible to an organization with hundreds of families, thousands of families, lots of people that we need to look at and analyze what let's let brainstorm what potentially could be the issue here and let's try and make sure that we mitigate against all, mitigate against all of that and then go for this at the same time. So there's that that bit of
1: yin, yin and yang, right? Self-awareness is another piece that you talk about within, within that, that pitfall of ego. And you uh, you show a tool that I uh, actually have never seen before. It's called the Jahari Window. And for yes. listeners and viewers, we're going to put that Jahari Window in the show notes and we're gonna link to it so people can actually okay. download that tool and use it. But what is it, and, and how do you use it? Great. So uh, this is a,
0: a window that I learned uh, fairly early on uh, in business by a consultant, and they showed this. Uh, so it's a window, right? And you'll you'll see it when you see the the visual. And there's sectors of these are the things I know about me and other people know about me okay so i know i'm i'm looking at you on the screen right now i know what i look like you know what i look like and uh uh you know i keep adjusting to make sure i still look proper um you know what's in my background i can see my background you know about uh about me things i've shared with you so that's you know and i know there are things i know about me that you don't know. I've not shared them before. There might be some private things. There might be things that we've just never discussed before. You're saying you, you know, in this uh, in this session that you've learned some new things about me. So now, uh, now that goes into the I know and you know, but there are things that you don't know about me that I know about me. And there are things that I don't know about me that you know about me. And these are what we consider blind spots right? So you might know that when I'm talking, I say, and I've had this feedback, I've, I, you say, okay, a a fair amount or so in some of your sessions. And I don't realize that because I'm in the middle of it. And so someone uh, might know that, and I don't know it. And the key is how to expand our relationship is to expand those portions of You know it, I don't know it, or I know it and you don't know it. So if I know something and you don't know, the the way to expand the window is for me to share, right? Or more importantly, ask for feedback, right? So I can become more self-aware of those things I don't know. And then you could share those things that you know that I don't know. And therefore we grow together, right? So we grow that window. And conversely, uh, if I have things that I know, that you don't know, I need to share more so that we can grow that part of the window. So it's really growing the relationship and growing the self-awareness. And the one I love the most is that blind spot because, you know, we we shy away from getting feedback when feedback's a gift for growth. And so we asking for feedback is super important because you don't you can't change what you don't know
1: yeah it's a right? it's a really useful tool i i I paused on that page for a bit and and thought a bit about it and you know oftentimes in the workplace to create authenticity and vulnerability the the person in power or the leader has to go first and I can see how that four box tool would be really helpful in clarifying some of the things that you might not think about that your colleagues don't know about you and then you get to to figure out for yourself how you wanna go about maybe just lifting the veil off a little bit to express a bit more of yourself than you're accustomed to. So useful tool. Thank you for going uh, going through it, Nick. Now, another one of the interesting pitfalls out of the 13 is what you call, everyone thinks they deserve what you have. And you tell a very personal, story about a bookkeeper now this bookkeeper was with you for almost a decade and they took over a hundred thousand dollars from the company in the last half of their tenure so for almost a half decade they were embezzling money uh, totaling a hundred thousand dollars what was that like for you to go through personally
0: Uh, personally it was devastating i mean at first uh, I had a controller that came and said, "There's some, there's a few transactions that just don't seem to be adding up." You know, we had job cost orders, right? So there, there's a job costing, and and that gets put into the order and it builds up. I know a lot of industries use that, and then there's this the sell price, and so you have, you put all the different jobs into this job costing for each each particular PO. And some of them weren't adding up when the controller was looking at them saying something's odd. And so he just caught a couple. And so I started to look into them and what I realized, and I had to dig deep into our computer system. And this is going back a number of years. Our computer systems are f- far more complex. Uh, so this was a more simplistic computer system at the time, industry specific software. So I would, I would venture to uh, say that it might be easier to get into uh, some of those transactions with a more complex system. Uh, When I dug into it, I realized that uh, indeed there were some fake vendor POs being posted into these jobs and it looked, the PO looked right. It had the vendor number and everything and the check that went out of the system. uh, So, EFT was a thing that was just sort of coming in at the time. So we did a lot of checks. The check that came out, it was in the system, said check for this amount to the correct vendor. So if you look at the paperwork, it's great. When the check comes out on the other end, then just before print, uh, the bookkeeper would change their name on the check. So when it got printed out, so in the record, it says check, here it is, it's gone to the right person, right? The right company, but as in printing change name and went to themselves. And, uh, eventually they got so, uh, cocky, if you will, about the system that, uh, our checks had to be double signed, right? So, uh, myself and one other, and often I'd go away to you know other locations as we're building this company, and I'd leave them a stack of signed checks, right? To say here's a stack because I'm I'm out of the office and we don't have some of the the technology we have today, and so they got started to get bold when they ran out of those. They actually started forging uh, some of the checks as well. So this was a person I considered a sister, right? Uh, like. I actually took them to Vegas on their seven year anniversary. That was, we called it the lucky seven program. If you're with us with seven for seven years, you're probably a lifer. So we we took you to a conference that there was every year in Vegas. And uh, I did a lot of things, uh, single mom. So lots of support and flexibility. And so when, when I dug into these and noticed a bunch of transactions over a period of, you know, call it a couple of months. You know, I called the bank and I, I had them give me copies of the checks, the physical checks, because there was a check return uh, system, right? And that's when I saw the name on these checks. So I called them, uh, I called her into the office and and said, listen, I've seen this transaction and I want to know what's what's going on. And they said, oh, I just needed to borrow some money. It was only one time. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to pay it back. I'm just a little, you know, low on money. And I said, well, so it just happened the one time? Yeah, just just the one time. And I said, well, here's four other transactions, right? So uh, I know you don't mean, you're not borrowing and you're not meaning to pay it back. And honestly, you broke my heart. It it, it, it broke right there and then. I just couldn't believe that uh, someone you have such a good relationship with or you feel like you do, would, would, would do that. And what I came to understand later, so obviously fired, walked out of the office, there was, you know, the police were called and they did their whole investigation and, and she she had jail time. Um, Not, not by me, but it was criminal at that point. And what I realized afterwards was she felt completely justified in her mind. She was owed that money right? She, I've been here for this long. I'm a single mom. I, I need more, you know, I need more income. She, she did ask for raises every so often. So she got the sort of standard raises as we were going, uh, uh, growing and, uh, but she felt very justified in it that that money's owed to her because of the loyalty she's shown the company. So in her mind, she justified it. And that's why this pitfall, or one of the reasons why this pitfall exists is because they believe they deserve it. And I've heard countless stories, a bunch in the book, countless stories of shareholders, like business partners. And one business partner starts siphoning more money out because they believe they're doing more work. It's justified, right? I don't believe this is criminal. I believe I do more, the the lion's share of the work, therefore I'm taking more money out without telling the other person, right? So people deserve, they believe they deserve that. And that's kind of a key
1: issue. Nick, you share a staggering statistic in the book that 30% of business failure is due to employee theft. I couldn't believe that. I had to read it a second time. What are some of the warning signs that you could have picked up on, or that employers should be watching for, that they might be at risk of this pitfall. Yeah, great question, Jeff. Uh,
0: some of the warning signs that uh, that I've read up about since, and I look back and reflect on, and I, you know, again, I can kind of see those warning signs occur when someone is incredibly protective of their job, their process, right, and doesn't let other people you know, kind of share or ask questions, right? If they're very, very protective, it could be a red flag, right? I'm not saying it is, I'm saying it could be a red flag because they're protecting that ability, their ability. Uh, some, some other behaviors that uh, people block other people just in terms of a personal relationship, they, they, they don't get involved in some of the engagement activities and some of the group discussions as much. They kind of segregate themselves. They alienate themselves a little bit. Again, that's a protection mechanism. Could be, I mean, there's different personalities, right? Introverts. We're not going to say all introverts are that way, of course. But when you see that it, it looks a little bit like a red flag, like it's unusual behavior for that person, it could be a red flag. The other thing is uh, you know, doing stop checks. So obviously since then I've always done you know, she at, at the time when we were growing, she was doing receivables and payables. Right. So best practice, have a different person do receivables and a different person do uh um payables, right? So you have two different people working on it because there's a stop check, right? And so system-wise. There's there's some things that we can do just to protect ourselves and do a little bit of safeguarding against that. Um, And when people don't want to do that as you're growing, again, there's a bit of a red flag to say, oh, you don't want to share that workload. Um, Not really understanding, like who, who wouldn't like to get paid the same or more for doing less, right? And so there's a bit of a red flag that could go up there as well. So there's a couple.
1: Another one of the pitfalls is what you refer to as dirty little spies. And I, I just, I love, I love the titles that you give these because it just makes you want to lean in and, and it, it made me really curious, a <laughs> good, lot good. of anticipation. And, and the way you describe it is that everybody wants to tackle the person with the ball. What the heck does that mean? Oh, you like
0: that term, do you? Cause it's a football reference.
1: <laughs> love it. I love it.
0: Um, so it's funny because uh, now Dirty Little Spies, that title came um, because I want, well, all the titles are kind of born with a little bit of uh, creativity and maybe shock because I I really, the whole book's that way, right? It's red, it's got swear words. And if you know me, I don't, I don't swear a lot, Um, but it's, it's born out of shock. I want to shock people and get their attention to say, look, look out, like, pay attention to this. I really want you to be saved from these pitfalls. And so, uh, I kind of came up with this one with a, a bit of a snicker because, uh, you know, it's one of those ones where people go, what is that? Right. And, and you've just done it. So it worked. Yay. Uh, I had a business partner that his, uh, father, and I do explain this in the book that his, his father was a, um, a big football fan um NFL uh as well as CFL and he grew up in high school football and when he was in our business and it seemed like he was getting attacked so you would have you know you know the rumor mill when i'm sure most businesses have heard it at some point oh i think they're going out of business and and there's all these like nasty assumptions that you're like, what the heck? Like, how are these rumors even getting started? And he was really upset one day. He says like, I'm doing the best I can. Our, our, our company's doing really well. We're in the media, we're getting awards. And really there's just people that, you know, are trying to tear down that success. And so he said, he said, I don't get it. Why, why are, why do I feel like I'm being attacked? And he said, son, Everyone wants to tackle the person with the ball, right? So football, you've got the you know receiver running down the field, everyone's trying to tackle them because they're the ones that have the potential success, right of a, of a touchdown. So that's why he said that. And I thought that was just profound, right? That all eyes are, if you have the ball and you're ahead of the, you know uh, ahead of the masses on the field, all eyes are on you right? All eyes in the stadium are on you because you have the ball. So if you're running with the ball and you're having all of this success, all of a sudden all eyes are on you
1: and people want you off that position because they want the ball, right? Does that also mean people inside of your organization might want to take your power from you? It definitely can mean that when we
0: talk about corporate politics, and certainly, some of that corporate espionage you were you were talking about. You know, uh, one of the ways that ego can can certainly get to people is wanting that power position to make decisions and to be able to uh, turn businesses in a way that suits their needs, right? And so with that comes the desire for more power, more decision-making power. And so there are definitely, you hear people wanting to climb the corporate ladder, but there's different ways of doing it, right? And one of that is, how can I sabotage the person that I can replace to get that power? And so you get this corporate politics, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening to this have stories where people were trying to sort of downplay other people's successes, trying to uh, sabotage some of their successes so that they could actually take those positions over.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that there's a little bit of a relationship with, uh, between what you just said there and then the other pitfall we just talked about that everyone thinks they deserve what you have. And I'm not sure if there's a perfect way to insulate yourself from, uh, there's an envy theme there, Nick. And, and I think as a leader, if you stay humble and curious and you're inclusive and you bring people into conversations and you talk about the things that you're you know, you know, perhaps uh, struggling with yourself, maybe it mitigates that just a little bit, but, uh, but not entirely. And so you really do have to watch out for who you invite onto your team and, and, and monitor uh, some, of those, um, some of those behaviors closely. Now, devil in yeah, disguise—that's another one of the pitfalls with a great name, very clever name. And devil in disguise, uh, generally, is avoiding um, keeping your avoiding. Sorry, it's like keeping your eye on the on the right ball. So, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, somewhat
0: relevant and related to um, ego, right? Is we could let success blind us to. the all of these pitfalls, quite frankly. And that's where the story of the Titanic comes in is to success as a devil's disguise. So, because uh, I, I, I always laugh thinking about that story Uh, when, and you, if you watch the movie and they've got the, the band that's playing on and, and the ship's going down and they're like, what do we do? And they're like, keep playing, just keep playing. Right. This is, Guest experience. Don't worry about it. Just keep playing, and the ship is freaking sinking, and they're going into the water still playing. And I just that just that image just always uh, always tickles me, because I'm like, how this is a perfect example of how we're just being blind to what's happening in reality, because we were told it's unsinkable. So until I'm gasping in the water, it's still unsinkable, and uh, so. So success was there, you know, was the devil in in disguise in in their uh, example, for sure. When I say keep your eye on the right ball, um, sometimes we get distracted by, and you've heard this, you know, distracted by the next shiny object. And this looks so cool and so successful. And instead of uh, sometimes what can happen is we have the ball right? And I'm going to con- I'll continue to use a football analogy for you, Jeff. Uh, we have the ball and we see the path and we're running the path. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe if I go in that direction, there's something shiny over here attracting me. Maybe I don't need this ball going in that direction. Maybe I need to actually change because, you know, the The trophy is on that side of the field and I want to get a good shot as I come across the, uh, as I come across the, uh, and they don't always do this, of course, but uh, as I come across the goal line, maybe the cameras are over there and the trophy's sitting there. So if I come across there, I'll get a really good shot for media, right? And so you've changed direction for ego's sake and you've, you've put your eye on the, on the spotlight instead of the points. Right, so there can be uh, that type of ego, right? So instead of you know, I want the glory and 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 not the results. And also on the right ball, we we could uh, be looking at different shiny objects. It happens more and more these days. Uh, with, again, with the the advent of all this our technology, is maybe this could be something we could add. This looks like a really fun project because sometimes we get a little complacent, right? We've done this same work for. 30, 50 years, and you can get a little complacent saying, you know what, it's it's boring now. We know it, we get it. Let's look for new, th- new and shiny things to to go after. But really, maybe the heart of your business and the and the foundation should stay the same because if we take our eye off of that foundation, that could crumble while we're going after these shiny things, right? Shiny objects. Right.
1: Now that entrepreneurial vigor that you're referencing is one of the reasons that makes a company successful in the first place, but then the organization, as it becomes more sustainable and grows, it reaches a phase where that will no longer serve it as well as it did. What are a couple of tactics that you've seen organizations use to mitigate that squirrel chasing dynamic? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that we wanna look at when, when
0: we're doing that first, first is that that same sort of analysis that we were talking about in terms of uh, going after this success versus, you know, what doing an analysis on what could be those, the damaging aspects and what could be the pitfalls, what could be, where's the danger, right? Um, very often, we're, we're doing one or the other. And and so there's a few things. We were talking uh, in the book, we're talking about uh, uh Countering cognitive bias. Right. So we we have this this bias in us that says this could be the right direction because this is what I've experienced. Right. Our typically our biases come from all the things we've experienced in our lives up to this point. And so that innate bias is in there. And so if we're if we're not aware that we have this innate bias, whatever that is. In any situation, then that could steer us in the wrong direction because we're, we're all we're using is the the experience we have. That's why, you know, all the collective minds are greater than than the one because then you can get all of that experience together to to analyze is this actually the best direction for us. So making sure that we involve. You know more of the people around us to get the collective intelligence in the room and collective experience. And so, you know, having that uh, awareness on on bias and the discussions with with more people in the room, more experience is really important to making sure you are going down uh, a path that 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 suits the company. Um, so that that's sort of the major one that I would sort
1: of point to. Thank you, Nick. That's helpful. I want to applaud you, and, and there's many reasons. I've known you for many, many years now, but I want to applaud you for sharing this story and for taking the time to write this book. I can see how it would have been helpful for you personally, but as a society, we celebrate the people on the podium, and we, uh, we, we tend to raise up what we would call the overnight success, but we know in reality, it doesn't exist behind it. Everybody that's on a, on a podium, whoever reaches that level of success in, in, in any avenue, there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of effort and time and struggle and self doubt and questioning yourself, whether you're going to be able to rise to the challenge to get to that point. But the other piece of this is not every story ends up on a podium and business failure. That's part of the deal but we keep that in the dark corners. We don't talk about these things as much as we should. Nick, I wondered if you could take us back, because I know that you left the business before it went bankrupt, but the bankruptcy yeah. wasn't far behind. This was, your, this was your whole life. This was your pride and joy. Can you take us back to those first few weeks after you left the business and what those were like for you emotionally? Yeah, uh, devastating. Right, it it, w- it definitely was
0: my whole life, and a lot of my identity was tied to that business. Right, so people in the industry, global, globally, uh, a lot of friends, right, and a lot of co- a lot of contacts in in that business. So uh, it was absolutely devastating. I tried to take a stand with the board um, to say if if you keep going down this path, I can see how you are uh, destroying the culture. There's nobody knocking on the door anymore. And we're, and people are leaving. And I can see that this is a path to, I call it the toilet bowl effect, right? So you, it starts to flush and you're like, okay, if it, well, we'll just do a little bit more and we'll just cut a little bit more. And it, eventually it just, it toilet bowls and it's, the water's gone. And uh, I could see this happening. And so I kind of took a stand to say, if we don't change direction and you start listening to a few of the things I have to say, at least um, this, this company might not exist. And so I'm not, I'm not signing my employment agreement um, to which, you know they were trying to change anyway so uh i said i'm not i'm not going to sign it which will make me not an employee i'll still be a shareholder um but that triggers all sorts of 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 items in the shareholder agreement right so it it does cause uh a lot of um a lot of things a lot of actions to get triggered if i don't sign the employment agreement and uh the board essentially said okay so I was like, Oh, backfire. Uh, that didn't work. Um, but you know, obviously I knew what the consequence would be if they, if they said that. So the, the few weeks after was quite devastating. Um, the, uh, the Calgary office was in the corporate building that I built and owned. So they were leasing essentially from me. Um, so that was going to be an issue. And, uh, I, the first few weeks are a bit of a blur because I, I think I spent a lot of it in bed. Right. Uh, It was, it was very, very hurtful. Uh, But then I started to get up and, and that's when I started to look in the mirror and I looked in the mirror every single morning, Jeff, for two years, understanding like what happened, where did this go sideways? What, what, how did this get to this point? And uh, as I looked in the mirror, I realized, and I and I do talk about this in the book, that I'm like, I'm here because of decisions I made. Ultimately, I made the decision to be here. And I made the decision to, you know, give up the hammer. I made the decision. I was the one that said, you know, this merge is going to be good for the future of our company, And I convinced our shareholders of such. I was the one that that pushed it forward. And so I said, I can't blame anybody, right? I was the one that said, I'll get into, you know, get into bed essentially with the wrong people, people that, uh, you know, weren't aligned with the same values as me. I didn't do the proper, you know, R and D on that, uh, on that relationship. And so, you know, after two years, I come out not feeling as jaded and, and, uh, you know, attacked and hurt by an outside source and said, these were my decisions. And so I wanna share those decisions with, you know, the outside world to say this, if this
1: can happen to me, it can happen to many people. Nick, is it, is it fair to say that you went from a mindset of this happened to me, to a mindset of taking ownership for it? Yeah. So what what led to that change in mindset? Because I think that that's what is really helpful for people because there's a whole bunch of people that are probably going through that experience right now, or they're about to, or they will. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of the quote by Nikki Lauda, the
0: famous Formula One driver that, that was being interviewed. And he said, you know, winning is one thing, but out of losing, I always learned more because I can't waste time blaming somebody else right? And so when we do some introspective work and I started to talk, you know, to think about what are all the decisions I made? Okay. This is what happened. These are decisions they made, right? They, but, you know, these are the decisions the others uh, made, but what decisions did I make? And when I started listing out the decisions that I made, I'm like, I made those, I didn't have to say yes to anything, right? So when I started to go through this, you know, deeper introspective look, and of course, it's after a, a number of weeks or even a, a couple of months of, of self-pitying, right, it is, is going, okay, so what, what did I do? What would I do differently? And you asked me that question, and I thought, you know, that's great because, that's what we need to to look at is what did i do and what would i do differently and when i thought about what would i do differently i'm like those were all my decisions right i i made all those and it you're right it took me out of that uh pity me pity me and and you know uh what's the rest of the life going to look like into a i i make the decisions for me i just need to be far more diligent in those decisions as I move forward, right? Nick,
1: how did this experience
0: change you? Uh, In quite a number of ways. Uh, First way is, as I said, to be more diligent in some of those big decisions and look at what what are the possible yin and yang with every situation. Uh, So I I do spend uh, more time reflecting on that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I do not look at any successes. I, you know, writing the book is a success for sure. And publishing it and being on this podcast is a success, but I don't look at it lightly. Right. I don't look at these things lightly. I look at them as, um, making sure that I am creating value as I, for others, as I hit those success benchmarks, rather than just absorbing the success and not looking at uh, other elements that could be red flags. So I'm just definitely more self-aware of the whole rather than specific pieces. So those would be the two sort of biggest changes. Was writing the book cathartic in any way for you? Yeah, a hundred, like definitely the first iteration of the book. I rewrote it four times. Uh, the first iteration uh was angry, right? I, I would I would gave the manuscript to to some peers and they said, man, this is an angry book. You're angry right now. And uh, and they said, there's so much value in here. you don't need to to show this bitterness as much, right? And then that's when I was sort of getting, I was like, yeah, I was writing it as I was going through the experience rather than, you know, post-experience looking back at it, right? There's difference. You know, we have all these emotions when we're going through something. When we're able to look back at it, we can dissect it better. And so I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, uh, a number, as I said, four times so that it wasn't, so I got the cathar- the catharsis out of the way and Uh, was able to look at what value can I bring out of this experience to to everyone. And that was when I got really charged, actually. Uh, I got really enthusiastic about, hang on, I think I'm on to this. It's a different type of business book. And I think I'm on to something that could help a lot of people. And that then started to drive me because I had this, uh, a more meaningful purpose
1: than I got to get this on paper because I'm bitter. Yeah, you took that negative emotion, you uh, you harnessed it for greater power. It's that's kind of the premise behind Monsters Inc. A little bit, hey? nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said it better than I did. Thank that's you. great. That's great. We, as human beings, we do this thing where we tend to focus too much on the outcome, and and it, it's called resulting. And so, if something goes well, we can overinflate our sense of uh, decision-making prowess. And if something doesn't turn out the way that we intended it can make us think we're poor decision makers and it might've might've been good decision process, just bad luck or something just didn't go right Right. this time. And so even though this business, ultimately you left it and it went bankrupt, when you reflect on that entire experience, what are the things you're most proud of? Um, I'm most proud of a couple of things. Number one
0: is I never faltered off of my value system. So to this day, I still strongly believe in build people and they will build the company. I strongly believe that, uh, you know, culture is incredibly important. I never faltered off of that. And I, in fact, it's the reason I left the company because it wasn't aligned to my value of people. And so I, I feel proud of that. Like I, I uplifted You know, thirty years of business life and building, uh, you know, a living. And quite frankly, I had, I was starting to look at retirement. I was starting to look at, hey, I see some numbers coming up that we could hit, and this will be my retirement plan. Um, So yes, I can be proud that I I left because of my value system. So that never faltered. That that's my biggest piece, and the second is uh, using all of that experience to help other leaders and organizations grow and be there, whatever success looks like for them. Uh, I'm using all of that to help others. And I feel a lot of gratitude to be able to to share the story. and, And when someone says, oh, I really like that model that helped me think about it a different way. I'm like, excellent, excellent. So I'm proud of that.
1: Yeah. I'm so pleased to hear you're you're able to leverage that whole experience to continue getting better. And and you nailed it there. You you said something that really struck a chord with me, how dangerous it is to look at the finish line while you're still running the race. So dangerous. Nick, this has been an exceptional conversation. You have shared so much with us, the the tips, the tools, but the thing I want to thank you the most for is your willingness to just expose what happened, your emotions, the vulnerability behind it is really refreshing. And I hope that anyone that listens to this episode is gonna take your lead on how they show up for their people and how they put it all out there. Because at the end of the day, we all fail, we all struggle. And the more comfortable we can be at, at putting those things in the light, the more acceptable they get. And the more I think we can even build stronger connections with each other to improve the quality of everything around us. Excellent, thanks so much for having me on. It was excellent discussion, I really enjoyed it.
0: And I really appreciate how much thought that you put into the whole conversation. It's just uh, fantastic questions. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank well, you, it's, Jeff. My, it's my pleasure. That's the least I can do to honor. Uh, try to just come close to honoring the work that that you have done. Nick, where can people track you down on the internet?
0: Yeah, uh, so I am on link, LinkedIn, Nick Thompson uh, in Calgary. Uh, also, if you go to nickthompsonbooks.com, uh, you can look at purchasing and there's a bio and there's some information on there, nickthompsonbooks.com.
1: It's where you can get it from there. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And we talked about some of the pitfalls in Nick's book, Look Out, You're About to Get f There are 13 in total, though, and I highly recommend you pick up the book. It's going to make you laugh. It might even make you cry. It'll make you reflect on your own leadership. And Nick, I want to thank you for not just the book and for sharing today, but also we are so fortunate to have you as part of our team. And I'm a firm believer that you build a successful company on character and then competence, and you embody both of those as well as anybody on our team. What a pleasure. And until next time, everybody, thanks for joining us for another episode of Unleashed. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.